halfway through our service. But this evening we're doing what's called an instructed Eucharist, where we are going to take sort of every beat of our liturgy and explain a little bit of the history behind it and the meaning underneath it and the way that our hearts should be oriented during it so that we have a richer understanding of what we're all doing together. So some of you have been here for weeks and weeks and weeks and you've been very great and patient and some of you have asked questions here and there. Um, and this is actually contested ground, just so you guys know. There, the, the long-standing sort of wisdom of, of liturgical worship is such that the liturgy actually teaches and informs us in ways that me explaining it in dialogue won't actually shed any more light on. Um, I think in many ways that's true. There are things that, we're, that we just do over time that sort of sinks into our bones a little bit. Um, but we do also have brains, so we're going to, tonight we're going to sort of talk through what we're doing. We'll probably do this about twice a year, at least initially, as you know, most of us are very new to this tradition. So um, you should have two booklets. One of them is our regular order of worship, and one of them is an introductory guide that, yeah, I already noticed that I even have some noun verb agreements that are like a third grade mistake. So if you want to email those to me later that I, that I screwed up some grammar here, that's fine. If you find anything else, just let me know. Give it to yourself for now. Um, if you want to go all the way to the back, uh, I just want to make a couple of notes before we get started. And then what I'm going to do basically is just explain a few pieces, and then we'll actually do them together. And then we'll pause again, and I'll explain a few more, and we'll do those. But I just want to make a couple of notes uh, about liturgy and why we do liturgy. So some of you were with us from the very, very early days when we were meeting in living rooms and just sort of sitting around dining room tables and talking about things. And one of the things that we talked about a lot initially was that our view of human persons isn't that we are just brains on a stick. We believe that we have physical bodies for a reason. God created a physical universe for a reason. And therefore, the way that we worship and, and do liturgy or do church needs to make sense of that. And so other churches have different ideas of how human beings are made. And, and that's reflected in the postures that you take while you're there and the things that you do or don't do while you're there. And here, you're going you're gonna to notice in a lot of the little explanations we come back to over and over again that we're embodied people. And we actually learn things through the behavior of our body over time. Okay? And so that's why we do things like stand, sit, and kneel different times, and we're going to explain some of those things as we go along. Um, but the whole idea of sort of a higher church form of worship, if you want to call it that, is trying to make sense of all of our senses, right? So there's things to see. Uh, there's sometimes things to smell if we have incense. There's things that we're doing, saying, singing. Um, and, and buildings themselves teach us and form us. And so we're very lucky to be in a place that actually sort of fits with the message that we're trying to send in our words and actions, which is that we come in here and we look up there and we see the cross, and we see the presence candle of Christ, and our gaze is immediately drawn that way, and we see creation, God's creation outside those windows, right? All of these things have a lot of meaning. So please feel free to look over uh, page 10 if you want a little more of my sort of thinking on liturgy and why we're doing what we're doing. 
And then just a, a couple more things, since we never get to really talk about any of this stuff, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of cram a few different things in here. So uh, one of them is vestments, which is this stuff that I wear. Some of you have noticed I've got an extra layer on today. Uh, this wasn't here last week, but I probably wouldn't have worn it anyway because it was 105 degrees and it was just a little too warm. So um, what you see me around in during the week when I wear my little, my little collar guy, that's just called a clerical collar. That's, that's to remind me uh, and you and anybody else I see that I have a specific job. Just like a policeman or a doctor would wear their uniform to work uh, so that people know who they are, this just says, I I'm collared by Christ. He's my, he's my Lord and Master. Now, the rest of this stuff is stuff that I only wear during what's called a, what we call a Eucharist service. We'll, we'll explain a little bit more about Eucharist in a moment. Um, but a friend of mine actually talks about it sort of like a butcher's apron, where the butcher is in there and he's working the meat and the blood is just kind of splattering everywhere. And, and I am here, along with all of us, not because I, I don't, I don't wear this because I'm special, I don't wear this because I'm holy or somehow better or more knowledgeable than everybody else. I wear this because I have been ordained, which means I have been called and set apart by the church to represent us, to sort, to sort of be the, the, the person in whom we all reside as we engage with Christ, even though we're all still here. Does that sort of make sense? Kind of? It's a little bit, it's a little bit muddy. It's a little bit murky. It's not clean, okay? Um, and so I wear these um, and they all have history and they all have significance. They all go back to the very, very early days of the church. Uh, so under here, what you, what you normally see is a stole that drapes around my neck. Uh, and that's to signify the yoke of Christ. Um, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Uh, and these colors that you see and the colors up here will change through the season. So green uh, is for ordinary time. Uh, and you can see here we also have a note on the church calendar. So you want to learn more about what all the seasons mean, you can look through that as well. But uh, green signifies growth, right? And, and rejuvenation and new life. And so we are in ordinary time. It's sometimes called Trinity Tide or the season of Pentecost. And it's the longest season of the church. It stretches from after Pentecost Sunday all the way up until Advent. So from a few weeks ago all the way until you know, late November, uh, we're going to be in Trinity Tide. Um, and the church new year really starts with Advent. So that's, that's New Year's for us. It's the beginning of Advent, the church year starts over, and we are, again are drawn through the life of Christ together as we sort of reimagine and rethink and re-experience uh, waiting for his birth, looking back, waiting for his second coming, looking forward. And then at Christmas time, we celebrate that arrival. And then we come to Epiphany, where we're celebrating these, these bursts of, of clarity of God, the Father, interacting with the Son in very clear, obvious ways, his baptism, his transfiguration, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we come to the season of Lent, which is a, a, a sort of reminder in, in drawing ourselves into Christ's 40 days in the wilderness, which is itself a recapitulation of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and for us, it leads into Easter. And so it's a season for us to, um, in penitence and reflection, cut out some clutter in our lives as we lead into a time of Easter. And so there's oftentimes fasting, uh, and we talk about all those things when, while we're in Lent. Uh, and then Holy Week really is kind of the pinnacle of the Christian year. 
And so if you were with us uh, this year, it was our first week in this building, it was Holy Week, and we did what's called the Triduum, which is just that the, the three-ish day period of Maundy Thursday, which signifies the, the Last Supper of Christ and his disciples, and then Good Friday, where we celebrate and, and, and mourn, but with joy, his crucifixion. Uh, and then Holy Saturday is kind of a day of silence, so even in the most traditional churches, uh, there's no there's no communion, there's no Eucharist, there's no singing. And all through Lent, we have been saying Alleluia. Uh, and it's all sort of bridging toward the Easter Vigil, where we have all this sort of pent-up joy just kind of waiting. Uh, and so those, those three days are, are very, uh, very, very big in life of the church. So please, if you don't normally come here, come back. Come back and worship with us for those days. They're, uh, they're, they're great, they're beautiful. All right, final one, and then we're going to actually start walking through the liturgy, okay? This is just a note on making the sign of the cross. So some of you guys have been here for a while. You see me do sometimes this, sometimes this, and you're kind of like, I don't, what's, what does this mean? Is this, are we, do we just swear allegiance to the Pope? I don't, I don't get this. <laughs> no, answer, everyone, no, we didn't. So making the sign of the cross is one of the earliest Christian practices. Uh, and the early church um, had a different cosmology, like they had, they had a different understanding of the world and, and the supernatural and the spirit world. And so they, they really taught and believed, and I think in, in many ways they're, they're not incorrect. They, they taught that Satan was so utterly defeated in, in the cross of Christ that when a believer signs their body with his cross, the devil has to flee them. And so, in many ways, it's a sealing of our body. And so, that's where in the creed, we'll, we'll talk about this again later, but in the creed, when we say that we look for the resurrection of the dead, we sign the cross there because it's, it's in the cross of Christ that we attain resurrection. It's through him. Um, and and it's, it's similarly um, a, a good mnemonic, just Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So oftentimes when we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the liturgy, make the sign of the cross. Uh, and then the, the two real big moments of the, of the sign of the cross where you won't see me doing this, you'll see me doing this, is during the absolution and during uh, the benediction. And we'll talk more about what those mean later. But again, because we don't think that we're just brains on a stick, uh, that means that you can pray with something other than your mind and your mouth. You can actually pray with your body. And making the sign of the cross is like, a, is like a physical action of prayer saying, I want to be marked by this. I want to live in this. I want to take up my cross daily and exist in this place where Christ took my punishment and then brought me to newness of life. Okay? So that's what's happening there. Okay, so flip back to the beginning on page four. And we're going to start talking about the things that happened toward the beginning. By the way, I'm not preaching a sermon tonight, so you don't have to settle in for like a four-hour service. We're going to start clipping along here. Don't worry about it. Um, so most of us have not grown up in this tradition uh, or, or liturgical or higher church traditions in general. Uh, and so usually we're used to kind of coming in and we see our friends and it's really great to see them and so we want to talk with them and chasing our kids, and we're getting our coffee, and we're doing this and that. Um, and if you'll notice, we're, we're trying slowly, all of us are sort of reshaping how we do things. 
We're trying to have those conversations out there, and that's great. We really, I mean, we're a community. We want to know how each other are doing. Some of us are very busy during the weeks. So we don't get a chance to really connect except on Sundays. But when we come in here, um, there's kind of a switch that happens where this, this becomes a place of, of prayer and engagement with God's Spirit. And so typically we try to come in uh, in, in quietness and, and begin our prayers. And so uh, you've got kneelers on, on the pew in front of you. Uh, if you, if you want to flip that down and kneel and pray, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, you'll notice that there's a baptismal font back where you came in, that little bowl of water. The reason that churches place that back there is that it's a reminder that we all enter God's church through baptism. And so if you've ever seen like in movies or something, if you're ever like in a Catholic service, people will dip their finger in there and make the sign of the cross when they come in. That's, to, that's, that's a refreshment of your baptismal waters. So you're, you're coming in and you're reminding yourself by dipping your finger in there. I got here because the Spirit of God dragged me in through water. God works in strange ways. Um, and most of us haven't been practicing this, and that's totally fine. Please, go at your own speed. Uh, but you'll notice that when, when I come up or when our other um, uh, liturgical assistants come up, when we get up here, we'll do what's called reverencing the altar. And most times in, in church settings like this, all of us would do that when we come in and we get to our pew. You would either do something like this or maybe drop to one knee. And again, uh, it's because we're embodied people, okay? Uh, and I realize that some of you are maybe already having all sorts of questions about, well, what do you think is up there? <laughs> or who? <laughs> um, there's a lot of mystery, some of which we'll explain, some of which is impenetrable. Uh, but we really believe that Jesus is here. That his spirit is here with us. And if Barack Obama or the Queen of England were to walk in here, you better believe our bodies would act differently, wouldn't they? And so, again, go your own pace, but this, this is a way of, of recognizing and training our bodies to recognize that we're not just coming in here with an agenda. We're coming in here to meet with the living God, and he has an agenda, and he sets the agenda, and we respond to his agenda. And that's why we enter this place in silence. And I don't just come in and, like I'm doing now and just start talking about, here's what we're doing today, right? Because we're not the ones who are setting this up. God is the one who's setting this up. And we're meeting with him. So that's, that's called reverencing the altar. You'll, you'll see us do it uh, with the processional. Um, but I, I would just encourage you, if, if this is where you come generally during every week, um, Try to get here early. Try to get here by 10 till, and, or maybe quarter till, and have some conversations with friends. And then come in and don't let this be a throwaway moment. None of us have enough silence in our lives. And so to be able to come in here and realize that you're not in control. And God isn't asking you to bring a full-on 10-step program of how you're going to live so much better for him this week. He wants you to come and hear him. He wants you to come and be embraced by him. So just come in. Take a few moments of, of quiet and not doing anything. And let him act toward you. Okay? 
So then the processional, you'll, you'll notice in a moment, we're gonna, I'm gonna go back there and we're gonna do the processional. We're gonna start, uh, the music will begin to play. You'll start to see people stand up, almost like it's a wedding, right? People will start to turn toward the back. And you'll see Naomi first will come with the cross. And that's to signify that, that Christ leads us into worship and it's the crucified Christ that we follow. And so we are following him into worshiping him. He leads us everywhere. Uh, behind her, generally, you'll see someone carrying a book of scripture. Sometimes it's the whole scriptures or, or a book of the gospels. Uh, and it's raised. It's to signify that this is the word of God. This is life for us. Uh, and then behind those people, you'll see sometimes, usually just me, because uh, we're a small church, uh, but sometimes there will be several people that are dressed in variations of what I'm dressed like. And the order is actually uh, specific. So deacons would come first, and then priests, and then bishops. And it's to signify that each sort of layer, if you will, of ordained life is a step downward in servanthood. And so the bishop comes in last because he's the servant. And the priest, if there's a bishop, would come in last because he's the servant of the whole community. So again, all these things have, have meaning attached to them. Um, so again, there, there's, there are things happening you know, that we see. Sometimes there will be incense, and, and incense is always in Scripture a, a symbol of prayer. So as you watch the smoke drift up, that's a reminder, that's a, that's a way to get it into your nostrils, that your prayers to God smell amazing. He loves them. He loves them. Why wouldn't we want to pray to him? Unless you don't like incense, in which case, he still loves them. Incense smells amazing. Come on. Come on, guys. Um, okay. And then we'll, we'll talk through the beginning there on, on top of page five. we do the processional, okay? So we're going to practice what I just said. So Lindsay, don't start playing yet. Let's, let's take just a minute of quiet. God is here. He's glad that you're here. So let's prepare to move, shall we?
Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hear the summary of the law. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High. Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, from whom comes all good things, grant us, your humble servants, the inspiration to always think and do those things which are good. And by your merciful guiding, may we perform the same. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, normally, you guys can have a seat. We would go right into some songs. Let's talk about what just happened. Rather than beginning like we did this evening, where I come in and say, welcome, glad everybody's here, we begin with an acclamation. We begin, essentially, by greeting God and allowing God to greet us. This is, this is primarily about us encountering God. That's what worship is about. And at the beginning of our service, we have this mixture of prayer and singing, and there's a summary of the law. And the summary of the law is there to remind us of many things, one of which is that we have failed miserably to uphold the law. During Lent, we actually go through the Ten Commandments, every single one of them, to remind ourselves how far we have failed. The rest of the year, we just, we, we just do the summary, which is almost even heavier. It's only that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbors yourself. Not a big deal, right? So we begin by recognizing, boy, if this is on us, we've failed. And we begin with the prayer of purity every week. That's the same prayer. And this is a feature of Anglican worship, this prayer of purity, and it's a reminder that God knows everything about us. We may have been trying to hide away this whole week, or for most of our lives, but there's no hiding in this room. There just isn't. The good news is that we're all sinners, and that God loves us and longs for us to come to him. He welcomes us. So this, this part of the service is, is a mixture of sobriety and joy because we're being reminded of how far we've fallen short and we're being reminded of how great God's mercy and love is toward us.
reason that we stand to sing and we stand in other parts of the liturgy is because dead people can't do that. People of the resurrection stand up. Praise God. That's why we stand. Um, and so we, we stand when we sing. Um, and then this section of the liturgy, before we move into the hymns of praise and the liturgy of the word, ends with uh, what looks like collect, but it's actually, of course, church people got to throw you off. It's pronounced collect, but it means to collect. It's, it's a prayer that changes every week of the Christian year. So there's different themes. So when it's a, a feast day like the Ascension or Pentecost, it'll usually have something very specific to do with that. And the rest of the year is just a different sort of soundbite. And what it's designed to do, the reason they call it a collect, is that it, it's collecting all of us in our thoughts and prayers toward one idea. And so what we just prayed um, was that that we would have the inspiration from God who does all good things to always think and do those things which are good, right? Live a, live a Christian life, but how? By your merciful guiding, right? It's not us, it's him. And, and perform the same. Anytime you see something, something the same, that's just, that's just English, English people saying for everything I just said applies to this part too. Um, so that's the collect. It's, it's getting us all focused in one direction as we enter in to worship. And so now let's stand again together and sing together.
Through most of the year, we here at also All Souls follow what's called the lectionary. Uh, a lot of uh, more liturgical churches follow lectionary, not all of them, and not always, so we may not do the lectionary the whole year, uh, but generally we do. And the lectionary uh, is a way of dividing up Christian scriptures so that if you were to be in church every Sunday for three years, you would get a gold star, and you would have heard almost the entirety of, of the Christian Bible read out loud. So there's a lot of scripture being read. So we do four readings. We have a, a, a first lesson, usually it's from the Old Testament. Then we have a psalm that we say in response, and eventually when we all learn how to sing and chant together, we might start doing some of that. Because um, the psalm book was always the song book of the church. Um, and then we'll usually have a lesson from the New Testament and then a gospel lesson. So generally we'll have a lector lead us or read most of those lessons. And then uh, those of you that have been here for a while, you'll notice that for the gospel lesson, we actually come out to the center. Uh, and usually the gospel lesson is read by a deacon or what's called a gospeler. Um, we're a small enough congregation we have to be scrappy, and so Scott's been awesome to just sort of do all of those parts for us, and, and next month we'll rotate over to another lector. But the reason that we do that, the reason that we make such a big deal about bringing that enormous Bible out here and reading the gospel from out here is a reminder that the gospel is the center of our life together. The words of Christ are the words of life, and we proclaim them that way to remind us that we're supposed to go and will be told to go eventually out into the world to proclaim the gospel. And at this point, you'll notice another little crossing that we do. Uh, and we cross our forehead, our lips, and our heart when we say the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to whichever gospel writer it is being read that day. And we do that, again, it's a physical prayer asking God that the words of Christ would be in our minds, on our lips, and in our hearts. We want to be gospel people in all that we think, say, and desire. So that's why you'll, you'll notice some of us doing that at that point. Um, Anglicans traditionally have always placed a heavy emphasis on Scripture. And that's why we have four Scripture readings all grouped together. Uh, because we really believe that the Word of God is life. We really do believe that. And even though most of us could, could live our lives without necessarily recognizing that, and a lot of our neighbors, in fact, do live their lives that way, we really believe that, that human flourishing, real resurrection life, comes through the Word of God. And that's why, after every reading, the lector says the Word of God, and we say what? Thanks, Thanks be to God. <laughs> right? When you've been given the gift of life, you say, thanks. So you can let that little gem of knowledge work itself into your inflection. Shout it. Thank you. I mean, this is how we get remade. It's because God is a God who communicates himself in ways that we can understand. It's incredible. And then preaching has been a practice of the church since the very beginning. The first thing the disciples did after Christ ascended, was they went around preaching. One of the first things Jesus did in his ministry was he went around preaching. And so every Sunday, except this one, again, everything I'm saying applies to almost always, except for when we do these. Uh, we will have a sermon, and we will take one of the lessons 
and we'll take time to consider what it is that God is saying to us as a community of his people here in Portland. What is he asking us to do? How do we continue to follow him? And above all, the preaching of the word is designed to arouse faith and love and devotion. The whole point of coming together and worshiping in these forms is that we would be more in love with Jesus as a result, right? That, that the things that we do here don't get done anywhere else. And we come away craving it. We want more. And our hearts are actually being reoriented toward Christ because we have been captivated by him and his mercy and his love. That's what preaching is designed to do. Every once in a while, I'll actually accomplish that. And that's always the spirit of God working in me. But that's, that's the idea. So, uh, as I just mentioned, we're not doing a sermon today, but we are going to read the lessons. So, uh, Scott, will you lead us in those readings? Oh, sorry. I almost forgot. I sprung this on everybody this week. Usually we print the scriptures in here. Uh, but I got to thinking, everything that we do sort of unintentionally forms us, right? And if I was a kid and I grew up here, I would start to think that the Bible comes in little paragraphs on these handy little bulletins that Father Stephen prints out every week, and it does not. So, those of you that have been coming to liturgical church for a while and haven't had to bring your Bibles, sorry, new day in town. Get those Bibles out. And if you don't have them this week, and honestly, even when you do bring them, uh, it's, it's great to read along, but also just, just hear it. There's actually uh, uh, philosophers that talk about the, the difference of human posture in the brain between reading, which is dominant, I'm in control, and hearing, which you don't get to decide about, right? It just comes in, whether you want it or not. So there's actually something about hearing the word that, that requires us to, to submit at a different level than if we're reading along and controlling it, okay? So even if you have your Bible tonight, I encourage you, just close your eyes. Listen to God speak to you, okay? Scott, thanks. The first lesson is from the Book of Kings. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Neboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Neboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Neboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry because Neboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel his wife said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Neboth in a prominent place among the, elder, among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, 
and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Bethlehemite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. The word of the Lord. This is Psalm 5. For the director of music, for pipes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Hear my cry for help. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. The arrogant cannot stand. You hate all who do wrong. The bloodthirsty and deceitful. But I, by your great love, in reverence I bow down. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The second lesson is from the letter to the Galatians. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord.
gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled from one town to another and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanne, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we see God as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus Christ as fully God 
and fully man. And, and so we're, we're getting all of this from the early, early church as they're wrestling with how to understand the Christian event and what it means to be a Christian. Um, the beauty of the creed is, number one, uh, you can match it up against the preacher's sermon and decide whether or not he's telling you the truth or she. Um, and another layer of beauty from the creed is that um, it, it really goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? We, we live in a very individualistic culture where we make our own destinies. We decide our own rules to live by. We make our own creed in a lot of ways. And the creed reminds us that we have not started Christianity. It didn't begin when we were born. It didn't begin when this church started. It definitely didn't begin when we walked in here today. Rather, we have been brought into a faith that has been handed down from generation to generation and is kept pure and real by the Spirit of God who protects the church. And so I realize that reciting a creed every week may feel a bit stifling to some of us really good Portlanders, good Northwest cowboy types. Um, so when I have people ask me about different parts of the creed and they're kind of like, I don't know, the creed is just kind of, it's like a really tight belt. Uh, I would encourage you to think of it more as walls on a house or walls on a building. None of you, when you came in here, walked over to the wall and stared at it for 10 minutes, thinking, boy, I don't know if I like this wall. This wall makes me feel really hemmed in. No, the walls allowed you to put your back against something and feel safe and contained and think about how you could use the space that's left to you. Okay? That's what creedal Christianity is about. Not everything is up for grabs. There are certain things that... It's just required to be a Christian. You have to say, I believe these things. Uh, and I'll be honest, some of them are hard. And if you really think about what we're saying, some of you may come to me with questions in the next couple of weeks about, I don't know, do we really believe that? Um, and, and we're going to start to unpack the creed in the fall. So uh, I'll try to answer some of your questions now. But um, this, this really is, uh, is designed to bring freedom because we can say with certainty, this is what's true. This is what's true about God and ourselves and the world. Um, after we say the creed, which we'll say in just a moment, uh, we will do the prayers of the people. And this is a time of structured prayer, and the forms change from week to week. There's, there's a, a few different forms of the, the prayers of the people. Um, but this is, a, this is a time where we really start to sort of place ourselves and understand where we reside. And so we pray for ourselves, we pray for our church, we pray for the universal church, we pray for the world. Uh, and we start to understand how we relate and how we should relate to our neighbors, both next door and across the globe. Uh, and I would say, too, um, this is really the moment where the church starts doing her work. Right? We have been called to stand between God and the world and reflect God's world back to him and reflect God into the world. That's what the priesthood of all believers means. Okay? Is that our, our neighbors and friends, our family, our loved ones, those that do not know him, if we're not praying, what do we expect is to happen? This is our moment to intercede on behalf of our world. And so 
Uh, tonight, in fact, you'll hear us uh, pray for the city of Orlando. Because they need our prayers, don't they? Um, so, again, for those of us that, that grew up in, in sort of more American evangelical-style churches, don't miss this, okay? Most of us, if you grew up in, in, in churches that I, most of you I know, the churches you come from, you come to church to hear a good sermon. It better be entertaining so you can really get into it. Uh, in this type of worship, in this tradition, in the tradition of the church, from the earliest days, you come to church to learn how to pray and to learn how to pray together because that's our work. And it informs all of the other work that we then go and do, acts of service, evangelism, and everything else. It all starts in this moment of praying together. Okay? So, if you're able, would you stand and let's recite the creed together, and then we'll enter into a time of prayer. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Please remain standing as we pray together. With all our heart and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, and for the, and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray to the Lord. Lord for our bishop and for all clergy and people, let us pray to the Lord. For our president, for the leaders of the nation, and for all in authority, let us pray to the Lord. Lord 
for the city of Orlando, and for all those who live in heartache or fear as a result of violence. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the good earth which God has given us, and for the wisdom and will to conserve it, let us pray to the Lord. For the aged and infirm, for the widowed and the orphans, and for the sick and the suffering, let us pray to the Lord. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. For all who have died in the hope of the resurrection, and for all the departed, let us pray to the Lord. For deliverance from all danger, violence, oppression, and degradation, let us pray to the Lord. For the absolution and remission of our sins and offenses, let us pray to the Lord. That we may end our lives in faith and hope, without suffering and without reproach, let us pray to the Lord. In the communion of all the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for Jesus Christ's sake, our only mediator and advocate, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So the moment of confession and absolution sort of marks the transition between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table, which are the two main sort of overtures of ancient Christian worship. Um, and again, we're using our bodies. So we kneel to signify not just our penitence, but also our helplessness. That there is nothing that we can do to undo what we've done. We can't get ourselves out of this. So kneeling is, is a sign of, of being helpless in a lot of ways. Um, and in our confession, we call on God to be merciful to us. Why? Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So it's another reminder, even as we come to confession, that we enter into relationship with the triune God only by the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we have declared over us the words of absolution and the comfortable words of Scripture. And this is a moment where, um, again, uh, it's, it's mysterious, and don't, you know, don't take it further than what I'm saying, but... It's a moment that in the absolution, each of us is hearing the voice of Christ. Right? Um, so if, if you were at my ordination service, you'll remember that uh, all the other priests come up and they lay their hands on me and the bishop uh, 
passes on what Christ gave to the earliest apostles, which is the authority to bind sins and loose them. And this is that moment where I enter into this line that stretches out before me and will come after me, where I exercise that authority. And what I'm telling you, what the church is telling you, what Christ is telling you is that you are forgiven. You are. It's real. It doesn't matter if you feel it in that moment. It's true. Okay? Our feelings are fickle. They don't always tell us the truth. So when you're here and you make your confession and you hear those words, you know God is happy with you. He looks at you and he sees Christ. And in, in doing the absolution, I make the sign of the cross over all of us. Again, as an embodied prayer that the only way this is possible is because Jesus Christ suffered unimaginably on our behalf so that we can enter in and come and call God our Father and go up and eat at his table. So let's come and confess our sins together. Would you kneel along with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear these words of comfort. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Please stand. So as we enter in now to this second movement of the liturgy, we do so by passing the peace. And it may seem strange to sort of stop everything all of a sudden and say hello to one another. That's not actually what we're doing. What just happened is we were given assurance that we have peace with God. And as Christ taught his disciples, we are also, before we come to the altar, we are to have peace with one another. And so when we pass the peace to one another, what we're saying is that we are at peace as much as it depends on us. It's not always just on us. But as much as it depends on us, we are at peace with all people. And in the old days, this would be the only church that any of us could have gotten to. And so there would be time for you to go get that figured out if you needed to get it figured out before we would come to communion. You would go and you would talk to whoever you needed to make it right with. Um, so it's a little more symbolic because obviously we all have other relationships outside of here. But in passing the peace to one another, we are, we are saying the peace that we have with God is now moving outward in our relationships to others. Um, and so... Don't, don't let these little throwaway lines be throwaway lines. They're not throwaway lines. When I say the Lord be with you, <laughs> what? 
amazing. When I say the peace of the Lord be always with you, I mean, isn't that why we're here? Because we don't have peace and we need him? So the peace of the Lord be always with you. Greet one another in the Lord. So if you haven't worshipped this before, this is the first time I say, Hi, welcome to All Souls. I got through all of that before you actually learned my name. Um, I actually do have a couple announcements. This is where we put announcements. Uh, announcements are sort of the, the perennial black dog of church leaders. We never know where to put them so that everyone will hear them. So we put ours right in the middle. Uh, so a couple things that are coming up for those of you that, that are regulars. Uh, we're continuing our monthly potluck and prayers service um, over the summer. So we're going to do those once a month. So the next one is going to be June 26th. Not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday. So we'll meet here. We'll be in the fellowship hall. Uh, bring some food to share or some drinks. And uh, we'll do evening prayers. And then we're going to continue in our discussion about discipleship. So um, if you haven't been able to make it to those, please come anyway. And if you want to sort of know what has been going on in those in the past, come and find me and we can get coffee and, and talk through some of that. Um, sorry? June 26th, two weeks from tonight. Uh, I'm going to announce this, but I, I don't have anything firm in place, so just bear with us. We're going to cancel the monthly study nights for the summer, and we're going to replace them with something that's more family oriented and do some like picnics in the park and stuff. So I just kind of got to get my calendar sorted out and maybe talk with a couple, uh, let's face it, we all know moms around the world. So talk with some of you and figure out what's going to work best for most of us. And so for the summer, we're going to, we're going to forego study night. If you really want to do study night, uh, you know me, I'll come and drink a cocktail at your house. We can talk about whatever you want. So uh, <laughs> just mix me some drinks and we can, we can go for it. Uh, but so we'll, we'll, we'll have communications about that. If you're not on our email list, please go to allsoulsperlin.com and sign up, uh, and then you'll know what's going on and all of that. Uh, just a couple items of service that I want you guys to be aware of, too. Uh, we're still in need of volunteers in our nursery. We're, we're still slowly starting to get our kids' stuff sorted out, so thank you to all of you that have been really involved with that already. Uh, we still are going to need more folks, because Sunday happens apparently once a week, so uh, just... There's a, there's a sign-up sheet online. If you don't have the link, I can send it to you again. Um, but it's been in our email for the last few weeks. So please go sign up there. And then also, um, please remember the, the, the black families still. They're still in, in NICU. 
Um, little baby Beckett is doing amazing, uh, but the brain is a very strange plastic thing, and so it, it, they're still not sure how things are going to go. Um, but he's doing remarkably well with everything else. The big change uh, for us is that they've had family in town all these last few weeks, and they don't have any family in town for the next little while. So Naomi is working on a meal sign-up. I'll have a link to you guys in this week's email. Please jump on there and sign up to take them a meal. Um, and we can, we'll sort of sort out how open they are to having visitors versus not, because I know that's sort of it's changing over time. Okay. To the hospital. Eat in. Yeah. In the hospital waiting room. So, yeah, please, uh, please, when you see that link, go ahead and sign up. I know his second surgery was scheduled already. Does anybody remember? June 24th. June 24th. So, Baby Beckett is having a second uh, surgery, and, and that's going to be June 24th, and then they've got a couple weeks of healing after that, and then they get to go home. So, please continue to be in prayer for that family. Um, all right. I think that's all I have. For announcements. Uh, okay, so moving, moving forward. You guys are doing great. How are we doing on time? Boy, I'm, I'm long-winded. Sorry. You guys are like, we would have just rather you did, did a 20-minute sermon than 20, 20-minute sermons. Okay, I'll pick it up, I promise. We're coming down to the time of offertory. This is a very core movement in the worship of God's people. This, this, is, this stretches all the way back to the beginning. God's people bring in their tithes and offerings, sometimes they're called, or their first fruits. The wealth that they acknowledge has been given to them by him, they bring it back. And they bring it back before they spend it all, right? He gets it first, and then they spend what's left over. And so there, there's sort of this dance that happens, uh, and we don't quite do the full thing, because again, we're, we're small and scrappy, but a lot of times, the bread and wine that we use for communion will actually be back here. And the person that brings up the offerings of the church will bring up the bread and wine as well to signify that, that all of these gifts are sort of coming together. And we're being given gifts by God, and we're giving gifts back to Him. So it, it's a really, really uh, beautiful moment of, of this sort of reciprocal love going back and forth between God and His people. Um, so in a moment, we will do that. And before we get there, I'm just going to go through communion and sort of what's happening in the communion prayers and what happens when you guys come forward for communion and how that works. And then uh, we'll, we'll just do it. We'll do communion, and then I'll, I'll say a little bit about the recessional and, and a couple things at the end, and then that'll be that, okay? So, after the offertory, uh, we begin sort of the, the communion part of the service, or the Eucharist part of the service, with what's called the Sursum Corda. Sursum Corda is just Latin for hearts lifted. And so you'll, you'll see it just moment, I say, lift up your hearts, and you say, we lift up the Lord. Again, this is not just a nice thing to say. We actually believe that what's happening in, in this moment is that we are being caught up together by God's Spirit into the heavenly realm where this worship of Him happens without end. Ceaselessly, the angels are calling back and forth to one another the song that we will call back and forth to one another here. That's why I say lift up your hearts. It's not, it doesn't just mean be cheerful, although that's a, that's a good thing too. It means, it means look up. We're, we're, we're joining in with all of God's people, all of his creation in this moment. Um, and, and it really begins a movement toward consecration. And consecration is one of those big theology guy words that means uh, to be set apart. A lot of times our, our Bibles will translate it as, as to be holy. Um, 
And so we usually think of that as moral virtue, and that's not necessarily wrong, but in the Old Testament, there's all these uh, sort of vessels used in worship, sort of like we have, uh, that were consecrated, they were made holy. And all that means is they've been set apart for a specific use. And so in a moment, you'll, you'll see in the Eucharistic prayer that uh, we consecrate the elements of bread and wine to become for us the body and the blood of Christ. They will be set apart from just any old bread and wine and be used by God to nourish us on Christ. And we also pray that we would be consecrated, that we would be set apart and made holy for his purpose, to go out about his mission in the world, to remind him that this is not about us, it's about him, and we're being called into it. Um, this section of the liturgy has, has things that stay the same and things that change, so if you've been with us for a while, you'll maybe notice there's, again, some, some seasonal reinforcement. So in some of these prayers, like if it was Ascension Sunday, you'd hear me praying something about Christ's ascension. Um, and so those are, those are called prefaces. You can read a little bit more about those there in, in your guide. Um, and then d just a little bit to say about Eucharist. This is going to be really hard to, to compress into a couple minutes, but I will do my best. Um, all of the, the, the forms of Eucharistic prayer emphasize different aspects of God's redemption story. And so in the prayer, you're going to hear me saying, kind of for and with all of us, the story of what God has done in the world. Because that's what he's asked us to do. That's what he's asked his people to do from the very beginning, is just constantly be repeating what it is that he's done on behalf of his people. Um, and really, what we see as God's action in the world is being sort of summed up and epitomized in the Eucharistic meal. Uh, Eucharist, by the way, just means thanksgiving. So some people call it communion or Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Um, I like the word Eucharist because I, I love the idea of, of a Thanksgiving meal. Like this is the place where we are just so overjoyed to be because of what Christ has done. Um, these prayers all include the words of institution. So you'll hear every week that, that little clip of what Jesus says in the gospel. This is my body. Every time you take of it, do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the covenant of my blood. Okay? Every week, th th this is the sacrament that Christ instituted, so we, we're, we're doing it in the way that he prescribed. Um, and this is where we get into the, the sticky wicket, as our friends across the pond would say, of Anglican theology, which is Eucharistic theology. What is happening in the Eucharist? What's going on with the bread and the wine? Um, all right. Yeah, we can solve this problem that's gone on for 2,000 years in a couple minutes. Um, here's, here's, Anglicans have a pretty wide breadth of what they believe happens with bread and wine. Um, here's what the prayers teach us and what I personally believe, okay? Um, is that as we're here and, and we're praying that God would sanctify this bread and this wine, we are calling on God to make real for us what Christ said would happen. Which is, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Not, this is a symbol of my body or a symbol of my blood. It's, this is it. Now, most of us are wondering, so does that mean we believe in transubstantiation, even though we might not really know what that means? Uh, the answer for me is no, I don't. I, I think that's, I think that's a, what I would call a category mistake. Transubstantiation is asking, how does it become the body and blood of Christ? And I say, wrong question. Wrong question. I don't know how. 
Uh, if you were to put it under a microscope, it would look like bread and wine. But what Jesus said is that when you partake of these things, you are partaking of his body and blood. And in John 6, the crowd is horrified at what he says. And what does he say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. They didn't misunderstand him. They were upset because that's really weird. Okay, but, but this fits in with the whole um, sacrificial system of the Old Testament being summed up and ended, bringing to, brought to its terminal point in Christ. So uh, for those of you that are, are a little more into nuanced theology, just understand we don't believe that we are re-sacrificing Christ. His sacrifice happened once for all. His blood covers all of us. It was, it was that one time. That's it. He's seated at the right hand of God. End of story. Um, what, what we are doing, though, the reason that we call that an altar um, is because the sacrifice is still being made, but it's our sacrifice. So Paul calls a sacrifice of praise and a living sacrifice, he tells the Romans. And so you'll, you'll hear that in the prayer as well. Okay, and so all of this gets tied in with how God's people have always worshipped him, but now we do it through the body and blood of Christ. Um, and and you'll, you'll notice that the, the prayers really straddle this tension of theology that we really believe Christ is present, uh, but we don't think that the bread and the wine physically actually becomes flesh and blood. It's a spiritual reality. And, and the prayers reflect that tension. Okay? Um, if you guys have questions on my horrible, poor explanation, you can ask me after the service. Uh, you can read a little bit more. I think I may have been a little bit clearer when I wrote this down the first time. Um, but yeah, just know when we talk about uh, offering sacrifice, we mean we're offering a sacrifice of praise and we're offering a sacrifice of ourselves. What the prayer says, our souls and our bodies, right? All of us to God. Uh, and then the Eucharistic prayers conclude with the great doxology. By him and with him and in him in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And that's where the people shout, Amen. And that sort of sums up this thanksgiving. And then the people are invited to boldly pray as Christ taught them to pray. And we pray the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And, and we realize that we get to call him Our Father because of what Christ has done. And so it's part of our Eucharistic feast together. Um, the fraction just means breaking. So in the liturgy, uh, you'll, you'll notice, so I'll say something like, uh, Behold the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world, or something like that. Uh, and, I, and I break the, the communion bread there. Um, this, is, this is sort of a, a recalling of Christ's body being broken on the cross. Okay? So this is a time of sorrowful joy as we consider how our sinfulness broke down upon the body of God's Son. Okay? Um, it, it's, it's, it's a time of... of um... Do you get that a lot of Christian worship is kind of ambivalent? There's a lot of sorrow and joy sort of brought together because of our failure and, and, and the way that we have so grossly walked away from God, but how mercifully and wonderfully he comes after us. I mean, it ends on a major chord. It doesn't end in a minor key. It ends with joy. But there's still these moments where we have to recognize that it's our sinfulness that required this. And how beautiful is it that God is willing to do it for us. So that's, that's the fraction. Um, the prayer of humble access uh, is better caught than taught. We'll hear it as we say it together. It's a beautiful prayer. It's based almost entirely on scripture. 
Um, it's us reminding ourselves that we get to come to this table and feast because of what Christ has done on our behalf, not because of anything else. Um, and then communion begins. And so uh, here's, the, here's the practical, get out your diagrams, here's how we do this, okay? So uh, I'll be up there with my communion assistant, uh, and we will eat first, and then usually our musicians will come up just because they have to get to their stations and, and play a song. Uh, and then we don't have uh, enough people to warrant uh, ushers for this part. Some churches will have ushers sort of tell you when to go up. So just, just sort of go up by row or, or come up when you're ready. It doesn't matter to me. Um, what you'll do is you'll, you'll come up to the rail there and you'll kneel, and you'll hold out your hands like this, again, shape of a cross. Um, and and you'll, you'll have the bread placed in your hand. All baptized Christians, by the way, welcome to come and feast. If, if you've been baptized... In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you come and eat with us. This is, this is God's table for his people. Okay? You'll come in and you'll place your hands and, and you will receive communion. Okay? This is, this is an important uh, theologically laden distinction from maybe how uh, some of your other churches do this, where you go and you take communion. We don't take communion. We receive communion. Jesus comes and gives himself to us and we receive it. Okay? So, uh, for those of you that have been here for a while and you're kind of wondering, like, what is the, the rightest way to do this? I've got it all written down there for you, okay? Usually the bread gets placed in your palm. You bring it up like this rather than picking it up because, again, it's just, you're just receiving it, okay? If you'd rather have it uh, consumed by intinction where we dip it in the cup for you, that's totally fine. Leave it there, and the chalice bearer will come along and dip it for you. Typically, I know some of you are doing that because you're like, I don't know if I want to put my mouth on that cup. Just so you know, typically the chalice bearer would actually put the wafer in your mouth at that point. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. If you're, if you're a germaphobe, <laughs> you just never know what might be happening. We, we won't force that on you. Okay, so, so if you want to go by intinction and then have it handed back to you, that's totally fine. Um, if, if you've consumed the bread, the chalice bearer will come around with the cup, and they're going to stay holding onto it. But go ahead and put your thumb on the base and, and guide them. Let them know when you've got it, okay? Take a drink, and then sort of guide them back down. Um, a lot of times, people will mark themselves with the sign of the cross, either before or after receiving communion. Again, just a verbal or, or a, a physical action of prayer, signifying that, that we're here because of what Christ has done. Um, and uh, the, the proper response to receiving communion uh, is always, Amen. Amen. Body of Christ, bread of heaven, given for you. You eat it and you say, let it be so. This is true. This is true. Um, let me just make sure I'm not missing anything else here. Okay. Uh, we, will, we will look over the, the rest of the stuff after we've all uh, feasted together on communion. So, um, we will begin with the offertory. Uh, so get, get back in your other booklet there, and, and we'll go through communion and then we'll huddle up and talk about it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord God, our Father, when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you sent your only Son into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. On the cross, he offered himself once for all as our Redeemer, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. After he ascended to your right hand in glory, you sent your Holy Spirit, that we might become your holy people. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Now sanctify these gifts that they may become for us the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also, that we may be filled with your Holy Spirit and manifest your presence and power in the world. Therefore, Heavenly Father, as we joyfully proclaim our Lord's life, death, and resurrection, we offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, as a living sacrifice. Grant that we who partake of this Holy Communion may receive the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and be made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. At the last day, bring us with all your saints into the fullness of your heavenly kingdom, where we shall see our Lord face to face. By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, as Christ our Savior has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercy. 
We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace. The gifts of God for the people of God.
blessing is rooted in the, in the ancient practice of God's people. And it is, again, the best news that we have peace with God. That we have peace with God. So part of our blessing is taken from ancient scripture and part of our blessing is taken from our Kenyan brothers and sisters. And they know how to say it and shout it and point it. And so the way that we do it here, when we say we send to the cross of Christ, we're going to point to the cross. We're going to shout it. And when we say that we set our hopes on the risen Christ, we're going to point up and we're going to shout it. Okay? All our problems, we send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. All our hopes, we set on the risen Christ. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. And then we leave the same way we came in, following the cross of Christ. Let's sing together. serve the Lord.